Next day, the crowd which had stayed on the other side of the lake realized that there had only been one boat there. They knew that Jesus had not gone in it with his disciples, but that they had left without him. Other boats, which were from Tiberias, came to shore near the place where the crowd had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they got into those boats and went to Capernaum, looking for him. When the people found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they said to him, Teacher, when did you get here? I am telling you the truth. You were looking for me because you ate the bread and had all you wanted. Not because you understood my miracles. Do not work for food that spoils. Instead, work for the food that lasts for eternal life. This is the food which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has put his mark of approval on him. What can we do in order to do what God wants us to do? What God wants you to do is to believe in the one he sent. What miracle will you perform so that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the desert, just as scripture says. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. I am telling you the truth. What Moses gave you is not the bread from heaven. It is my Father who gives you the real bread from heaven. For the bread that God gives is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Those who come to me will never be hungry. Those who believe in me will never be thirsty. Now I told you that you have seen me, but will not believe. Everyone who my father gives me will come to me. I will never turn away anyone who comes to me because I have come down from heaven to do not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And it is the will of him who sent me that I should not lose any of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them all to life on the last day. For what my father wants is that all who see the Son and believe in him should have eternal life. And I will raise them to life on the last day. So how many people here make it a habit to uh, go to lunch after a Sunday service like this one? Anyone here make that a habit for themselves, go out to lunch? All right, so a few of you here. My family did as well when I was a kid, only we didn't go to, uh, to joints like Saxes or grills like Flames. My father took us to the... Uh, cornucopia of culinary delights called Costco, where, where we would feast on the uh, famous, the famous Costco samples held on various aisles there in the store. <laughs> this is what we knew. And back in the 90s, especially, you could count on Costco offering a four-course meal because uh, there was always be uh, uh, some type of fruit uh, or an hors d'oeuvre fruit entree, and some kind of dessert, a, a, a complete whole four-course meal, <laughs> right, with just an annual membership. We, we did this enough that I even remember some employee started to identify me like as a regular, 
like uh, Norm from Cheers, if you remember that show, like it would come in, oh yeah. And uh, they even gave up on telling me where I could find, you know, Amy's burritos, on what aisle I could get the dull diced pineapple. They just said, oh, we're not, not going to tell this guy because they knew I was not there to buy. I was just there to feast, right? And then, and then return next week, next Sunday, to do the same thing. I think Jesus, as we start to see him in this, uh, in this passage in John chapter 6, must have felt a little bit like a Costco employee, as likely hundreds of people came rushing up to him along the beach to this little seaside town of Capernaum. The day prior to that, Jesus was across the sea freely feeding them all full of bread and fish, so their bellies were full. Very unlike, you know, Nora from Costco, the employee who was paid to not point out the obvious in customers. Jesus is not on anyone's payroll, so he could just come out with it and say, here's the real reason why you came back to me this morning. Truly, truly, I say to you, not because of the miraculous sign of multiplying bread and fish, but because I filled your bellies full and you're coming back for more. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here in verse 26, and that's the context of where we see Jesus this morning interacting with this crowd. We've been exploring together some of life's most important questions these last number of weeks, questions asked of Jesus and by Jesus in John's account of Jesus' life. And this crowd comes to ask him a question also. That question is essentially this, how do I please God? They ask him, essentially, how do I please God? And we'll see in Jesus, in Jesus' answer, our message in a nutshell this morning. If you remember nothing else, remember this, our message in a nutshell. Jesus explodes, absolutely explodes categories with a simplicity of life forever through trust in him. Again, Jesus explodes categories through the simplicity of life forever through trust in him. But we can't even get to the question this morning without better appreciate who's asking it. So we can understand what these categories are that are getting exploded. So let's talk about that first this morning. It is the categories of a Galilean Jew, the crowd that comes to talk to Jesus categories of a Galilean Jew. Much of Jesus' ministry so far, that we've seen at least in John, has been placed beneath the shadow of the religious establishment in Judea, in the big city. Educated leaders, most of whom could read, even some of whom could even write. When Jesus returns from Jerusalem to the small villages of rural Galilee, he's speaking to hardworking agricultural people whose focus wasn't on education, but on growing food to eat attending a synagogue every Saturday and taking care of their household, both their actual house and the people living in it. Those were some of the, the focuses of such people. Uh, food was hard won, and usually the food you provided was what you're going to eat. The food you produced was what you would eat yourself, but it wasn't the only way you would eat. Occasionally, you'd get free food. All right, as we see he, here in our story, the context of our story. It was the common practice, actually, uh, in Roman culture at this time, in the Roman Empire, for politicians to hand out loaves of bread to their constituents to keep 
their constituents happy and to keep peace, especially in tumultuous areas, areas like Israel where Roman occupation was despised. Prominent figures could hand out free things, including free loaves of bread. And Jesus seems to them, this crowd, to have fulfilled that role in John chapter 6. Here's another prominent person who's come. He's giving us something. He's an authority figure giving us food. Well, for such people, their work would end on a Saturday when they would attend a Sabbath service at the synagogue. Synagogues uh, were built in Israel because they often didn't have a temple. A temple was destroyed. So synagogues were were constructed to preserve learning of the law and the traditions of the Old Testament. Uh, whenever you had 10 men in a certain community, you could build a synagogue. That's all that was required. The tradition of, of attending synagogue and having a synagogue continued even after Herod's temple had been built just a couple decades before we hear Jesus speak here. Continued the tradition of the synagogue. Now, in a typical synagogue service, psalms were sung. Number one, then you would hear a, a reading from the law and the prophets. And finally, a sermon would be preached, sometimes by a local, but usually by a guest preacher. In a small village like Capernaum, at most 5% of the people there could read what was being read to them, what was being preached to them. At most 5%. One rabbinic writing from the time made provisions for, quote, towns in which there is only one who reads. Only one who reads. That means what we think it probably means, which is there were probably some towns where only one person could read. Because the idea that very few people at this time were literate. Thus, their ideas about God and their worship were largely shaped by the religious leaders who stressed whatever they would stress through their Saturday preaching. So that's their conception of who God is and how to worship Him was what's going to be preached through the Saturday preaching. And the religious leadership, what we know about them is that most of them were known as Pharisees who were practical to the nth degree. We like practical, but they were practical to the nth degree. We saw last week that they composed 39 categories of work to help people follow one command practically. 39 categories of work to help people practically follow one of the Ten Commandments, the one about resting on a Saturday, on the Sabbath. Just to repeat, 39 ways to obey one command in the Bible. So when Jesus says in verse 27, do not labor for food that perishes, but for food that uh, endures to eternal life, the people latch on to what we would understand today as, as a sort of checklist. Each week they've been taught, here's the work, here's the labor you need to do to please God. And so prove you are his people. And that's why they respond so eagerly by saying in verse 28, okay, tell us, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Do you hear the language in there? What must we do to be doing the works of God? Because every week they're hearing, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? What do we need to do to please God? So first notice how Jesus responds to this. First, he cuts out typical religious language and Bible references when some of them bring up to him Moses and the provision for his people was something called manna, Jesus immediately turns their focus away from Moses and to God. He says, it's God, my father, who's provided it. And he starts calling this manna stuff bread. Let's just call it bread to be simple here. 
In other words, Jesus simplifies everything for a people who don't have time to sit around and debate theology, right? And they certainly don't need another condescending checklist of what will make a distant God happy. What they need is a straightforward message of how they might personally relate to God. How might I personally relate to God? So Jesus answers their question, how do we please God in a way that explodes their categories of what they've heard? It's a phrase unique in the four accounts of Jesus' life, the likes of which isn't uttered again until Jesus, after Jesus dies, rises from the dead and ascends into heaven. When the apostle Paul makes this truth his anthem, in a sense, Jesus fast forwards to the climax of his story just in case he doesn't get to talk to these particular people again. And so he says to them, this is the work of God that you trust in the one he has sent. Trust in him whom he has sent. And in saying this, Jesus offers a sneak preview of his good news message that you can never do enough works to please God. So Jesus does the pleasing for you with the perfect scorecard of his life, substituting his life for yours if you would but just trust your life to him. Simple trust. Every Saturday afternoon, a new sermon, but also a new checklist, which you try so hard to fulfill, but you must wonder at the end of the day, is it enough? And Jesus explodes these categories and simply says, I am enough. I am enough. I am the bread of life, he says to farmers who ate who ate what they harvested in order to survive. In other words, I am all you need for life forever, starting now. You know, a, a wise theologian and, and pastor named uh, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, he visited my seminary once to do a lecture for, for future pastors. And he said, basically, he pastored two types of people. And, and talked with him in counseling ministry. And he said those people um, were the overly comforted and the overly discomforted. Some people are too comfortable and some people are so uncomfortable, so discomforted. And our job is to comfort the discomforted and discomfort the comfortable. That was interesting. He said, you know, it seems hard to do that. It seems overwhelming, but really... We have the best tool of all, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the good news message that Jesus brought that comforts the discomforted and discomforts the comfortable. So my first question for you is, what kind of person are you? Either you're discomforted because you know in your heart of hearts you've never been able to live up to God's standard of loving him with all of who you are and loving your neighbor as much as you love yourself. You've never been able to fulfill that. And so you're discomforted constantly or you feel like you're a pretty good person compared to others and so comfortable. In which case, the good news confronts you with a message that your good isn't good enough because God's standard isn't most other people. It's Jesus. And no one can live up to Jesus. And that's what's so category explosive about Jesus' proposal that we're 
accepted by God only through trust in Jesus' performance, not our own. Our good performance is never good enough, thus humbling us, but also freeing us because our failures are never bad enough. Thus, we can forever celebrate. We can live with a, a, a radically freeing, humble confidence, confident and secure and accepted, not because of arrogance, it's nothing we have done, but because we're loved and accepted and gifted because of what Jesus has done. A life of humble confidence. Who else can live that way? But that happens through Jesus' good news message. Um, as the new guy here in town, I've sometimes uh, ribbed my fellow uh, Petalumans about being um, absurdly obsessed with baseball. Uh, it's really over the top, guys. Uh, I love you, but I want to wake you up to the rest of America. I've said this before, and some of you give me look, skeptical looks, but it's true. For a lot of America, baseball isn't as popular as it used to be. But I love it here in Petaluma. You guys love the sport, and I have a confession to make to you today. I need to humble myself, tell you that I have a pretty massive collection of baseball cards that I have lugged with me almost everywhere we've moved. I just hold on to it. Inside this collection of cards, I have a, a Future Stars card. It's called Future Stars from the 1980s. It's worth a couple hundred dollars. Well, for sure, a baseball card is, is very valuable. Most of them are worth two cents. Uh, there are three players on this card. All right, one is uh, Jeff Snyder. I'm going to give you his statistics. He played one year of pro ball. That's what's, okay, so baseball cards, if you're not familiar with them, they have a picture on the front of a baseball player and his uh, career statistics, his performance on the back. All right? So Jeff Snyder is on the front. He played one year of pro baseball, pitched in 11 games, gave up 13 earned runs. That's 11 games. The second player on the card is Bobby Bonner. Bobby appeared in 61 games, eight RBIs, zero home runs. It's not exactly $200 worthy statistics. The third player is a guy named Cal Ripken Jr. Appeared in 3,001 games, 1,695 RBIs, 431 home runs, and is a first ballot Hall of Famer. And I was thinking about this this week I wonder how Bobby Bonner feels about the worth of his card. Like, surely he, surely he doesn't believe his performance makes the card valuable, right? He could be angry, kind of bitter that his stats weren't good enough to make this valuable. But there's a third option. He, he could be totally giddy, just hold up his hands and be totally delighted and giddy at the fact that his value is based on another's performance. And just delight in that. What about you? Can you delight in that? That total worth, value, your acceptance is based on another's performance. That's the wonder of the gospel. The wonder of the good news that Jesus brings here in verse 29. I want to talk about one other thing this morning. And that is that words matter. Words matter to Jesus' good news message. Words matter. 
I'm going to go on a little bit of a rant here, but it matters to this passage. And the rant is, it's my stubborn appeal for using the word trust over believe and faith. Okay? I've talked about this briefly once before. I want to talk about it a little more this morning. Um, you may or may not know that the gospel accounts of Jesus' life in the entire New Testament, it was originally written in... An old, the older Greek language, a part of uh, Greek called Koine Greek. So anytime we read what we read here in our Bibles in English, we are getting the, the informed scholarly translation of a different language. And every once in a while, you'll get a word that has similar meanings in English, but not exactly. So we have one here in verse 29 and repeated many times in our passage this morning. And that is the Greek word pisteuo, which can be translated as trust, faith, or believe. Jesus uses this word as the only requirement to please God, to be accepted by him. Now, the whole point of translating the Bible and trying to do so accurately is to give us the closest possible meaning to the word in their culture as they understood it back there in the first century. So let's look at the options. To believe, think about this idea, to believe in something or someone insinuates today mental assent, that you, you mentally believe something is true. So last weekend I was scrolling through um, my, uh, the ESPN uh, sports app on my phone and saw that the U.S. women's national soccer team was playing in something called the She Believes Cup. I'm a curious person, so I was like, what is the She Believes Cup? I looked it up, and this cup started six years ago to inspire young women to believe they can do anything, they can aspire to anything, by first looking to these female soccer players, right? And saying, okay, I see them, and I believe in them. They've been very successful. They've won multiple World Cup titles, U.S. Women's Program, very successful. I believe in them. I believe in, in, in Crystal Dunn and Tobin Heath and some of these women. And that's what we do when we see athletes sometimes, right? We believe in our favorite athletes that they can overcome great odds, they can do great things. We believe in them, but we don't necessarily trust them, do we, right? Like we hardly know them. We don't really know their stories. We haven't spent time with them. They haven't earned our trust. So we believe in them. We don't necessarily trust them. So when Jesus says the work of God is to pisteuo and the one he has sent, he doesn't mean to mentally believe that he's a great God who can save them. That's why Jesus' brother James says later in the New Testament, even de demons believe in God and shudder. They mentally believe God is real, but they don't trust him. That's because the Hebrew understanding of the person of the heart was very different than ours. In fact, the Hebrew concept of the heart it's like the control center of the human being. The mind, the will, a person's feelings were all seated in the heart. And so uh, thoughts, actions, emotions all flowed from it. So think of that. It's actually, if, you, if you've seen the movie, uh, um, what's that Pixar movie about emotions? I'm just thinking of this right now. I didn't write it down. Inside Out, right? is a great mental picture of the Hebrew understanding of the heart. It all happens right there in one control center all together. The mind, will, and feelings are all there. So faith is a noun that usually 
refers to our particular faith, right? We say, our faith is important to me. My faith is important to me. Believe implies this mental asset. Only trust in English implies giving one's whole self to someone else, right? I trust you. I trust you to catch me. I trust you to be there for me. So to summarize, when Jesus says, this is the work of God, to trust in the one he has sent, he is saying, trust your one's whole self to me as the only requirement to please and be accepted by God forever. And Jesus' words in this passage back up this claim about trust. He spends the rest of our passage demonstrating that he's worthy of trust. Look at that with me, if you would. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You can trust me. You can rely on me. If you come to me, I'm never going to cast you out. Not just believe, trust. I came to do the will of him who sent me. His will is that I should lose nothing of all that he's given to me. You can trust me. I won't lose what you entrust to me. I will raise it up on the last day. In other words, even when you die, you can trust me. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and trusts in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise him or her up on the last day. His appeal is more than mentally believing in Him, but trusting our lives, our security, our future, our eternity, all of who we are to Him. Trust brings true freedom in Christ. And that's what I want to end on this morning. I, I was thinking this week, I had the, um, I was blessed this week to be able to do something, to do a prayer and participate in um, this Black History Month program for the Petaluma Blacks for Community Development. And I just trying to think this month of some great, you know, African-American figures, uh, particularly in this country, who have um, sacrificed much and have been very faithful I was reading about Harriet Tubman in particular, a woman who was born into slavery on a Maryland plantation in 1822. She grew up forced into work, forced to do different things. She she would drive oxen, she would catch muskrat in the forest, and she'd be a nursemaid. Uh, Harriet's owners frequently whipped her. She endured the pain, a greater pain of seeing three of her sisters sold into slavery. She never saw them again. They were sold to different families. But she had glimmers of joy in her life as well, particularly when her mother would read her stories about Jesus, in whom Harriet would trust her life. When she was 26 years old, she, she had gotten word that, um, that she'd be sold away from her family. So she determined she would run away. And she did. She ran some 90 miles along the Underground Railroad. She traveled at night to avoid slave catchers, followed the North Star until she crossed the border into Pennsylvania and into freedom. For eight years, she would make a dangerous decision, and that was to risk her own freedom, risk her own freedom to give others theirs. And that's what she did for eight years, leading slaves north to freedom. During these trips, she, she trusted her Lord Jesus specifically to guide and protect her. And she never once lost a runaway slave. As she later put it, I never ran my train off the track. I never lost a passenger. And she gave her Lord Jesus all the credit, explaining, and this is important, quote, Twant me, t'was the Lord. I always told him, I not just believe in you, 
I trust you. I don't know where to go or what to do, but I expect you to lead me, and he always did. Hear that one particular phrase one more time. I not just believe you, I trust to you. Friends, that's how we gain our freedom also. And we're empowered to respond with a life of radical risk for the Lord Jesus by trusting to him. Let's pray. Abba Father, I think about the crowd that Jesus um, encountered that morning. And I think about us as a people this morning. Father, sometimes I go back and forth between a person who's discomforted, I know in my heart, by just knowing that I've not done enough to please you and it makes me feel anxious and it makes me feel insecure. And other times I feel sadly self-satisfied that I'm a pretty good person and that's enough. And I'm thankful that through your good news message, I'm freed from both extremes. That I know that I'm accepted, not based on my own performance, but because of yours, Jesus. And that I have freedom and life forever because of that. And that that message actually empowers me to take great risk, risk doing things that might make me fail in the world's eyes. Because I know no matter if I fall flat on my face, I'm accepted and loved by you. What an awesome message. Help us, all of us here, trust that message for the first time today or again today. That we're loved not based on our performance or lack thereof, but simply based on Jesus' perfect scorecard of loving you with all his heart and loving his neighbor as much as he loved himself and then dying in our place to secure our place with you forever. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We throw up our hands, giddy and grateful for that liberating message shared here in John chapter 6, verse 29. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.